Good morning. I've said I've had the privilege twice already, and now I get to say it again. I have the third privilege of being able to preach the word of God to us. My son Kerrigan was back there messing around with this microphone. He kept asking me, why you wear that, Daddy? And I was like, well, I'm going to go preach, buddy. He's like, why? Um, but it's a good question. Like, why? Why? Well, because we all need a word from the Lord, whether we know it or not, but we do need it. And the Lord speaks to us through his word, and especially through his preached word, where we actually have relationship with one another that is growing, that we can elaborate and look into these things together. And so as our brother prayed, would we, would we open our hearts now to the word of the Lord? And especially today, to hear a word about the Spirit's work among us. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to it. I believe the passage is not... So we have, you turn to a Bible, to Ephesians chapter 4. Um, there should be some under your chairs. There's also, if you don't have a Bible, there's a stack of them in the back on that red table right there. I welcome you to take that with you. Um, but if you have a scripture or you just want to listen... Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25, verse 25 through 32. And let's hear the word of the Lord together. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry. But do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to give to those who are in need. And let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear it. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's the main injunction of this passage, the one that kind of knits these things together. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. But there's a positive exhortation implied in there as well. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Rather, instead, grow in the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Grow in the Holy Spirit. If you have your bulletin, I made a last-minute change to the title. It's now Grief or Growth, not 
grief or relief, sorry, for the last minute change, if you all were very concerned about it, but that's going to be it. Grief or growth is sort of what's being presented to us today. And what is the Holy Spirit growing if we're being invited to grow in him? We've been going through Ephesians, and succinctly in one line, Paul puts it earlier in verse what we know is 2.22, chapter 2.22, he says, in him, that is the Lord, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is building a dwelling place of God out of us. And what would the dwelling place of God be like? Beautiful, radiant, peaceful, sweet, enjoyable, delightful, and awesome, and perfect. What wouldn't it be like? Or what wouldn't be there? Maybe the opposite of those things hostility, lies, revenge, bitterness, clamor. I mean, think about it. Dirty things will have to be cleaned. Broken things will have to be restored. Anything that is unwanted or unhelpful or harmful needs to be put away if a beautiful and perfect dwelling place of the Lord is being constructed. Anything that would hinder or harm the glory of God manifest in the enjoyment of his people needs to be put away. And that's what the Holy Spirit is at work doing. Now, but what if the redeemed members of this new household, the thing that you're putting together, didn't want to fit together? Right? What if the jewels that you've spent time cutting to shine so perfectly just started cutting each other when they were put together or didn't sit in the seat that it was put in or muddied itself? What if the Lego pieces you've worked so diligently to find and clean and restore and put together didn't want to actually fit together? And instead, only wanted to be with the colors that are like them or the size that are like them or argued with one another about where they should be in the place. It would grieve the construction project, wouldn't it? Right? Like a gardener who's trying to plant a beautiful garden and yet the plants just compete and strangle one another. And in seriousness, we know what that's like as we grow things in this world, and when instead they don't cooperate with what is supposed to be beautiful, families you're trying to grow, but instead children are lost, hurt, walk away, marriages you're trying to build, spouse walks away, they don't work well together, Friendships you're trying to build, but instead are riddled with betrayal and hurting words. It grieves you, doesn't it? It's grievous. And it's that seriousness 
that is the context of our passage today. The seriousness of which the Spirit wants to grow this, this dwelling place of God is at work doing so, is, so, is not thwartable. And yet it is grieved when things don't work the way that they're supposed to be working. When they don't cooperate with the operation of the Spirit. And so that's what we're being presented with in this passage. That's the context of this passage that we're looking at. Is think about the Holy Spirit growing and wanting us to grow together richly in it. And thus asking us not to grieve him by not cooperating with what he's doing. So that's what I want to look at today. Briefly, our outline is essentially, who is the Holy Spirit? It is worth us visiting that topic. And what is he doing? Touch briefly on that. And then I want to walk through this passage and look at some things to bring out of these various case studies or examples that are laid out to us. And then I'll conclude by pointing us to Jesus. So, who is the Holy Spirit? We've heard a lot about the Holy Spirit, I think, in this service, but who is the Holy Spirit? Well, in the creeds of the church, you say the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. The Holy Spirit, if you're taking notes, is God. The Holy Spirit is God. We believe that God is one and yet three in an eternal mystery that I do not have the time to get into fully, but has been worked out over many centuries, that God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, perfectly unified, perfectly whole, and yet not confused. The Holy Spirit is God. But he gives life. In Genesis, we read that in the beginning of creation, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and brought forth from confusion and chaos life. The Word of God spoke, and the Spirit made it be light and life and being. And He does the same thing. Wherever life is being given, from the very breath of God, breath, that's the same word used for spirit in the Scriptures, the breath of God being breathed into us, not only in terms of the air and our lungs and the work of our hands, but actually the newness of life. To believe in Christ is to receive new life. And that is the Spirit coming to apply the work of Christ, to awaken our hearts, to quicken them to God. And he breathes new life into us that we might have new life in Christ. So he's the life giver. God the life giver. And if you wanted just like three things that you could remember, it's not an exhaustive list, but you know, sometimes alliterative points can be helpful about the Holy Spirit. You can think of three Ps. You can think of other things too, but three Ps, prophecy, power, and promise. Prophecy, power, and promise. When God speaks through men, we call it prophecy. Men does not breathe out his own prophecy, though he may try. All true prophecy comes from the word of God. And how does he receive that? The spirit is at work within him to speak. The spirit brings forth the word of God. And the scriptures confirm that over and over, that men of old spoke through the Holy Spirit. And so the scriptures, as well as the, the tangible breathing out of the spirit to give us life, but power, 
power. We talked about the Spirit of God hovered over the waters to give life. He is powerful to work. When you see people in the Scriptures being filled with the Spirit, they are animated to such an extent that they can do what God has asked them to do, whether it is fight enemies or protect people or to have power in rule or to even be filled with all manners of gifts, ordinary and extraordinary, to glorify God. He is the power of God unto salvation and the power of God to do the things that he asks us to do. He's also the promise. I love, the beginning of Acts describes this, until they received the promise of the Father. That's how the Holy Spirit Spirit is named, the promise of the Father. Jesus calls him the helper. In fact, it's not just a helper like, oh, it would be good to have this help. He says, it is better. The Lord Jesus says, it is better that I go away and that he might come, that you might have the Holy Spirit, the convictor, the comforter, the counselor. See, the Holy Spirit is the very mind of God, the very reality of life being breathed and given into us. That is the promise, the promise of salvation is in large part that you would receive the very life of God through the Holy Spirit. So he is prophecy, he is power, he is promise, he is God himself. And in our own tradition, we describe it like this, the Holy Spirit applies what Christ has accomplished. See, you have to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't just a force out there to be tapped into. He is given And he is given in faith. Throughout Acts and throughout the scriptures, you see that when people hear the word, I love this, when they hear the word, they glorify God and rejoice in salvation. And how do they do that? Because it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) The Holy Spirit awakened their hearts to hear and glorify God and rejoice in salvation. I think in large part, that's why our tradition says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The Spirit is bringing new life to do the thing that we were most made to do. And he fills us with it. As Paul says in Ephesians, that his hope is that you be filled with all the fullness of God. That's another way of saying that you will receive this Holy Spirit in believing in Jesus Christ. But what does he do? (laughs) That's who he is. God, the Lord, the giver of life, who is prophecy and power and promise, come to awaken us to what we were made. But what is he doing in that? See, when we receive him, we're not just receiving him individually into our hearts, as if it's just a unique animating force for me, and then a unique animating force for you, and a unique animating force for you. The one spirit is given into our hearts to knit us together to the other in whom he has come into his heart, and the other in whom she has come into her heart. You see, the one spirit 
in coming into the world and coming into the church is to build something, to grow something assembled of us. God's grace to miserable, mismatched, misfit sinners was to give them a new life together in Christ by the Spirit. He is growing, as we read before, building us up into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is a corporate reality. And that's a y'all. In him, y'all also were being built together. Okay? Many of the yous are y'alls. We just don't write it. Okay? Okay. It is a corporate reality that the one spirit among many people through time and space is knitting us together, growing us into the very place that God would dwell to beautify us. That's why we read about sanctification. His role is to sanctify us together as one who is coming into the territory that has been purchased that has been won, that has been conquered by the king. And he's like, and now I'm here to make it good. And now I'm here to make it good. Or as Paul puts just earlier here in Ephesians that we heard not last week, but the week before, he says in in chapter 4, verses 12, after giving all these various gifts, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ. And that's where he goes on in verse 15. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The Spirit of God is now the Spirit of this new body, this dwelling place that is us. And so he is the one knitting together people who are redeemed, who though maybe having nothing to seem about themselves, God went purposefully in Jesus Christ to find, I want that one. I want that one. And why? Because I want to make them beautiful. And I want to enjoy them. And I want to put them together. Though they be from every tribe and tongue and nation and place, I will put them together. Though they be riddled with all manners of sin and disobedience, I will put them together. Though they be afflicted by every harm and consequence in this world, I will put them together. So the Spirit is the putter together, the grower. And this is then as a context, right? This is who the Spirit is. This is what he's at work doing growing us up in every way into him who is the head, jointing us together, fitting us together, weaving us together. Whatever metaphor you want to use, it's probably in the Bible, and you can put it together. He's making something new and growing us up in love. 
And so as we now go through some of these examples, case studies, whatever you want to call these various kind of one-line injunctions that Paul is giving us here in his letter to the Ephesians, that's the context I want you to hear. Because first of all, this is written to Christians, right? Having put away falsehood, in which he's referring to having learned Christ, he is reminding those who have been redeemed how to now grow, how to cooperate with the operation of the Spirit, how to love, essentially. How to love. And so let's get into this together. And I just want that vision in front of us as something that's precious being grown up and knit together. Because a list of do this, don't do that, don't do this, do this, can feel a little weighty. Um, and I hate to break it to you that we have a few more chapters of that, okay? But remember, that's in the context of like, cooperate with what is at work within you. That you might know the freedom and the joy of it. So let's get into this. Chapter 4, verse 25. The first thing Paul tells us here, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. What comes to mind when you think about speaking the truth with someone? Maybe, maybe that means sharing the gospel, like the truth of the gospel. Maybe that means kind of telling the truth as in not lying, right? Not fibbing to the person next to you, um, no matter what might be asked. It might mean telling the truth about like things that are true, kind of that we hold up. And all of those can be true about this passage. Speak the truth with your neighbor, for we are members of one another. And I, I, what I want to highlight then is a few particular things. One, that the root of this is actually about sharing life. There is value right, about speaking the truth in of itself as sort of a moral principle. But that, that's actually not what's necessarily being named here and not what I'd like us to focus on. What I'd like us to focus on, speak the truth because you are members of one another. Lies corrode things. Lies are destructive. Secret secrets are no good, right? as we say. Because this isn't just about sort of speaking abstract truth. It's about speaking relational truth. What kinds of truth might that be? That might be discussing the types of bumper stickers that are on your neighbor's car. Now remember that we speak the truth in love, so it probably doesn't mean just confronting them one day because you heard the pastor say that you should speak the truth. But it might mean having conversation. It will certainly mean preaching the gospel and speaking it and inviting them into your homes to do that. But remember, it's a relational truth. It can also mean confession. Right? We speak the truth in honesty about ourselves 
we name ourselves and are honest about ourselves to one another. How often do we say, like, how are you? Oh, doing pretty good. Are you? We have to practice telling the truth to one another. And that can be difficult. And there is wisdom in discerning who you say this to. It doesn't mean that you say it to every person on the street. But you should share the truth of your heart and your soul and your condition to one another. Because you are members of one another. We know that intimacy is the grounds of relationship where honesty most bears fruit, right? We know it because sometimes we've tasted the goodness of it. We also know it because sometimes we've tasted the badness when someone betrays that. And this is why the Spirit is at work knitting us together, giving us the security, because we don't actually have anything to hide if we're in Jesus Christ. You don't have to lie about the fact that you're a sinner or that you're struggling. That has been revealed to you, right? That we were dead in our trespasses. You also don't have to fear condemnation because Jesus has taken it from you. And so you have every excuse to be honest about who you are. And that bears testimony. To relate the idea of confession and being true about ourselves, to relate the idea of being true about God, where we don't need to just speak abstract truths about the gospel, that we bear testimony from our own souls. To say, this is what has happened to me. This is how the Lord is ministering to me. This is how the Lord has saved me, and I need him to save me again. I'd encourage you to read the Psalms to give you an, uh, examples of how that's done. Another point, just to briefly point out, like you have to know your neighbor to speak the truth with your neighbor. We need to get to know one another. The Spirit is breaking down every wall of hostility with one another. Get to know your neighbors. Invite them into your homes. Invite one another into your homes. Eat with one another over meals. Be honest about how you're doing. That is the groundwork and the soil that is rich of bearing us up and growing us as the Spirit is at work. And that's what the Spirit is doing. So hear that, that speaking the truth in love, we are members of one another. That is a context of sharing life, of sharing life. But we all know there's lots of things that get into, can break up our relationships, right? What's the next verse? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Resentment can build in secrecy. I think many of us know how resentment can poison relationships and certainly keep us from telling the truth or make us tell the truth in really hostile and hurtful ways. And so what is Paul doing? He's quoting the Old Testament here, be angry and do not sin. It's a confusing line in many ways, and yet I think what he's saying is that there's a proper place for anger. There are things to be angry about, especially in light of the truth. You should be angry about wrongdoing. You should not not be angry about wrongdoing. We should allow ourselves to be opened. The Spirit is awakening us, actually, to be opened to injustice and unrighteousness. But the question is, what are you going to do with the anger? 
what are you going to do with the anger? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Essentially, like an Old Testament poetic way of saying, you need to talk it out. In fact, that's what Jesus lays out in his own words. If your brother has something against you, go and leave your gift before coming to the altar of God and go reconcile with your brother. And that too is the Spirit's work in us. For it is God who humbles our hearts to know, as he says here at the end, forgiving one another as God and Christ has forgiven you. If we know that we are forgiven, which the Spirit is at work telling us through testimony of one another, through the Scriptures, what do we have to harbor? Paul puts it even more bluntly at one point, would you not rather be defrauded then try to seek false justice and revenge on your neighbor. Yo, in Christ Jesus, you are forgiven. All your burdens are taken up. What do you have to harbor? You can be angry about something that was done to you. You should be angry if you were harmed or abused or you see another one. But even there, to go and speak the truth and seek justice and not harbor resentment in your heart, which will just be poisonous, but the Spirit is opening up to to say something and seek reconciliation because that's what God is doing. And the work of forgiveness, as unpleasant as it might taste, is the most healthy thing and the groundwork with what He is doing to build us up. And so here, that there's a place to be angry, but you must speak it out loud to one another in a posture of reconciliation. Otherwise, the devil will creep into that resentment and separate and isolate you, the very opposite of what God has intended for you. And moving on, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I love that. Again, it's back to this sharing. We don't see it necessarily in the English, but there's a similar word used in almost every single one of these about to give. All of this so that we might share and give life with one another. These various things that we're being instructed not to do, it's because they get in the way of sharing real life with one another. Let the thief no longer steal. There's two things I want us to point out here that the Spirit is at work in us. He gives us knowledge of what is good, of what is honest, about what is the real and perfect will of God to labor in it. Not so that we may just have like kind of a self-righteousness about it but actually because by moving in us, the, in enlightening us to the things that are good and honest and employing us unto that work because we have been freed, the Spirit is intending through that to give good things to those in need. We don't give good things by engaging ourselves in selfish and sinful work. When I am self-focused, it can cause me to essentially steal 
right? To take that I just might give to me in my insecurity. I don't know why the thief is a thief. There could be a number of ways, but essentially there's some root of insecurity. Have you felt insecure? Has it caused you to grasp for things, grasp for attention, grasp for material goods, grasp for some sort of security in life? And yet the promise of the gospel is that you have all security in Jesus Christ. What can separate you from the love of Jesus? Not famine, not the sword, not even death, not nakedness, not shame. All things are yours in Christ Jesus who has poured the Spirit into your heart to cry, Abba, Father. We have security in Christ and therefore do not need to grasp or steal or hoard or deprive, but rather be employed in good work in whatever form that might take to have security and confidence. And through that, the Spirit's not only giving to us that freedom, but through that freedom, trying to give to others in need. I can share a lot more when I feel content. And that can be materially, as he means here. This is a pretty like, obvious material need. But also just the giving of our own lives and our own selves. So the Spirit reminds us and realizes in us the security that we have in Christ, that through that he might actually give of our own lives, our own wallets, our own homes, our own words, things that are much needed by the people around us. And there's an intriguing point out here, <laughs> let the thief no longer steal. Remember that this is being addressed to the church to Christians who have been redeemed, forgiven, are being knit together. Y'all, there were all manners of people in the early church. There are all manners of people in today's church. But we can clean up ourselves in a kind of decent way to forget that sometimes. And one provocative thing I want us to wrestle with, that I think the Spirit wants us to wrestle with, is that there are thieves in the church. And that we have to name honestly the ways that we sin. We have to name honestly. And there are some tensions in the church right now about what that can look like. Notice that he doesn't say a thieving Christian. We don't get to turn our sin into adjectives and qualifiers to make different types of Christians. There is one Christian, redeemed from all manners of things and yet brought into Christ. The title of Christian, the reality of being in Christ, subsumes all other realities and categories and qualifiers that you may have. And so we have to be freed from that. And yet also notice that we need to be honest about the fact that we do still sin. And so while 
you might not be able to say something like, I'm a gay or lesbian Christian, or a straight Christian. As that's a current debate in much of the church at the moment. We do need to be, allow people to be honest. And so the Spirit asks us in the freedom that is given to us, do we have such relationships? Are we confident enough in Christ that we allow one another to name the sins that we struggle with? Because Paul can't minister to the thief if no one owns up to the fact that they are a thief. If no one accepts or is allowed to be accepted that they're a thief. We can't minister to one another in sins that seem to control and define us if we don't allow one another to name it. Because it's in there that we're then told, you are free from that. That instead, you might have something to give to those who are in need. And so we are challenged by the Spirit to be able to name one another honestly that we actually might be healed. James puts it this way, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. That you may be healed. He goes on, and I want to kind of wrap some of these verses together. It's a lot about the mouth, right? As James also says, who can bridle the tongue? All manners of wickedness proceed from a little organ. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Or later in verse 31, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and all malice. That's a lot of angry sounding words, isn't it? Corrupting talk. As he'll put it later in, verse, in chapter 5, filthy talk. We're talking about a range of things from crude joking to outright indignation and calling people names. From things as seemingly benign to things as serious as that last word there is blasphemy. Slander is blasphemy. Let all these things be put away. Now, we're not talking about the spirits coming into your house and you're trying to prepare to receive the visitor, right? And so you're hiding things under the rug or you're putting them back in the closet or I'm trying to find a place for them in my house so that things look tidy. No, he's saying, put them away. I'm here to remove these things that are harmful. He calls it corrupting talk. In a whole passage where we're talking about growing something together, growing this dwelling place of God well, what, what, what could be more opposite of growing something together than corrupting it? Removing its foundations. Creating cracks in the walls. And how much of that comes from our tongue and how we speak? That extends to the internet and the things that you write. It also says, what does he say? That the hearers, Right, that it might give grace to those who hear. You're also listeners. What do you listen to? If the, if the apostles are asking you to consider the words that you use to build up others, are you listening to things that build up you? 
Are you listening to things that are good? Or are you listening to things that are filthy? It wasn't that long ago that I was a teenager. Popular music can be real filthy. All right? I know that it's got a good beat. But we need to consider the things that are being planted in our minds. I know what it's like not to get a song out of my head. So what songs are in your head? What playlists are going over and over from the news or the blog posts that you read? It's shaping you. Is it corrupting or building up? Is it corrupting or building up to you or to your neighbor? As Paul puts it in his letter to Colossians, let all speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer. I submit to us, brothers and sisters, that one of the main caveats or the main qualities that you should be looking for to determine who you should listen to, not, as, not only how you should speak, is graciousness. Someone could say a bunch of true things online, and if they say it with bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, put it away. Put it away. For what the Spirit is building among us is kindness and tenderheartedness. That is not, cannot be influenced by bitterness and wrath and filthiness. See, it's not the Spirit just being a, a buzzkill that he doesn't like that music or he doesn't like that author or he doesn't like the way that you tell your jokes. It's because these things matter. People listen to us. Are they going to receive grace from us? For that is the Spirit's intent, to work and bear fruit through us. Rich fruit that people would taste and see that God is good. That they would look at that temple. The apostles pointed to the temple in Jerusalem and said, look at those beautiful stones. And Jesus pointed them to his own body. And that all is you. You are more beautiful stones than whatever Solomon might have built. And he would have it not be corrupted. So these are various ways that the apostle is working out in us, calling us to cooperate with the Spirit. To not grieve him. To not grieve him, but to grow in him. And there is a seriousness, as I conclude, there's a seriousness to this, as we heard from Acts chapter 5 that was read to us earlier. People were laying the proceeds of their property at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira and the church did the same thing. But they lied about how much they had gotten. Essentially, they said, everything that we got from the property, we gave to you. Wasn't it intriguing to hear the apostles' response? What? Who, who made you lie against the Spirit as if you would test him? It was yours. You could have kept it. You could have just told me how much you wanted to give. But you lied. Put away all falsehood. The Spirit struck them dead for lying to God. Brothers and sisters, all this putting away is not an invitation to hide. Hiding 
is tantamount to testing the spirit, and you will be found wanting. Hiding is the work of the devil, as he did in Genesis, where the first thing that, they t- that Adam and Eve did, after they had been deceived, they hid. They were naked and unashamed, and they became naked and shamed, and they hid. You are being freed from hiding. You are being freed from falsehood. You are being freed from shame and blame shifting that you might be naked and unashamed before God and one another and so built up. Don't grieve the spirit with hiding. Be honest about yourselves to one another. Because there's also a promise in this. There's also a promise. (laughs) I know some of this sounds heavy. And I'm aware that if many of us have grown up in the church, some of us can think like, well, did we hear legalistic sermons or moralistic sermons or sermons that told us to do this or not do that? And there's been a lot of that. And some of that is really misplaced. As if Jesus is just an example for you to live up to. And I recognize some of the peril of that. Because that's not the gospel. But this passage is telling you to do things and not do things. And we need to be honest about that. And we need to be honest about the seriousness of it. But we need to be honest about the reason why. It's because God is growing you all together into this corporate reality to be filled with love and to be a dwelling place for God. That's the mystery of the gospel that Paul's often talking about in here. Is that he was building something before the foundations of the world that might be to his praise and glory. And so my concluding question to us in light of these injunctions is, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus and all the beautiful things that he might promise to us about freedom from sin and glorying God and worshiping him if it comes along with well, a lot of things that you're supposed to not do and do? Even if I understand that it's good. Well, I submit to you that it's worth it, and I submit to you in this way. Um, God finds you worth it. See, none of this is coming about by our own effort. The Spirit has to be alive in you for any of these things actually to be true and to be working. And God finds us worth it. What do I mean? See, as I said before, we are miserable, mismatched, misfit sinners. And God sought us out, chose us before the foundations of the world that we might have joy and life in him. He gave his only son. He gave God himself to become man, to endure with man, to suffer for man and all the penalties and the injustice of his sin and to be killed for him. 
See all the weightiness of it may feel like death. God endured death for us that we might have life. And as theologian Dorothy Sayers once wrote in a quote, in a powerful quote that moves me every time, she says of Jesus, when he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and found it well worthwhile. And found it well worthwhile. Or as the author of Hebrew puts it, Hebrews puts it, Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He suffered for you. He found you. He gives the spirit to revive you and refine you and renew you because he wants to enjoy you. He wants to live among you. He wants to give you rest. And that's what he's doing. God endured suffering that this might not be suffering to you, but might be unto your glory and your enjoyment and eternal life. And I leave us then with these words from Revelation chapter 21 where John is receiving the vision of Jesus Christ. And then he said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the, old had, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This passage is the Spirit's preparation of you. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and he himself will be their God. We talked about putting things away. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We are participating in the former things passing away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Even so, Lord Jesus, make us new. Fill us with your spirit. That in us you might put away all these things. That we wouldn't grieve you that we grow up into you in every way that you attend, that we might be prepared as a holy city, as a dwelling place, as a new temple, as a bride adorned for you, that we might glorify you and enjoy you forever. Be pleased in us, O Lord, I pray by your grace and in your name. Amen.